Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Scott Horton, author, podcaster, and anti-war activist. We talk about his book, Enough Already, the history of U.S. intervention in the Middle East and the sequence of events that got us into the mess we're in. Scott also tells us about how he got into this topic, why the stories we heard from the press were not at all what the reality on the ground was, and how the U.S. has been completely hypocritical and clueless when it comes to the Middle East. Scott is a passionate man, and it's easy to see why. Having converted to libertarianism as a teenager, he's been a tireless opponent of the wars engaged by the U.S., His book, Enough Already, is an eye-opening look into the mess that is U.S. foreign policy. He has a keen eye for what the military-industrial complex is doing and explains thoroughly what's going on in this interview. Scott Horton, how's everything going, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here, Jimmy. (laughs) Yeah, and thanks for coming. Well, we're doing this live at the Unchained Capital offices, so it's always good to do these things. How's it been with the pandemic and everything for you in the the past 18 months or whatever? Well, it pretty much sucks for everybody, I think. (laughs) You know, I got a very light case of the germ Mm. from some friends at Porkfest last (laughs) month. But, you know, my wife has lupus, so uh, we were both vaccinated. Mm. So I got, I think that's probably why I got a pretty not bad case of the germ when I was infected. Stefan Kinsilla also had the shot and we both got off easy. (laughs) Some of my other friends who got it there got a little bit harsher. I think there's a correlation, but I'm no you know, Mm. scientist or math magician or anything. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of things going on with that virus and you know especially recently more people like getting together or whatever but yeah so i didn't give it to my wife i was sick with it and i didn't spread it so that was good because that that was kind of the point of getting vaccinated was i hope that i wouldn't get her sick because she's got the dumbest immune system in the state of texas so (laughs) i didn't want to piss it off so speaking of dumb things that you don't want to piss off let's talk about the u.s government because you've written a book on basically the U.S.'s military-industrial complex and how it has been completely dumb over, I guess it's been 42 years or something like that, in the Middle East. So you're the author of Enough Already. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, what led you to write this book and how did you get interested in this topic? Mm. Well, I've been interested in anti-war stuff really since the 1990s. We were talking a little bit earlier about how George Carlin, when I was 15, cured me of my love of Iraq War I, which I didn't care at all about. Oh, we have to go save the Kuwaitis and all this stuff. I was just a 14-year-old boy who likes watching explosions and supersonic (laughs) jets and stuff, like everybody else. But then, so I learned, you know, I was still, you know, just 15 years old, 16, just barely old enough to drive or whatever by the time I got completely cured of that. And then, you know, for pretty much the entire 1990s or at least the second half of the 1990s i really was like you know new world order conspiracy theorist type i was a john bircher but without the right-wing cultural stuff but i was all about the one world government the united nations uh, plot and all of that kind of thing Mm. and if you read that stuff carefully from that era a big part of the argument was that america's foreign empire is actually the giant evil Illuminati conspiracy to destroy us, because that's the only way to destroy America, is through overextension and Mm. self-destruction, through debt and driving our military into the ground and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So it's a bit different than the leftist anti-war take, which I read a lot of Chomsky and all that too. So at the time, it's like, you know, you read the leftists for what America's doing to the world, and then you read the right-wingers for why the world is all out to get us and all of this. <laughs> but what they have in common is that American militarism is the enemy of our freedom here and the way that we want to live here. And so then by the time of Iraq War II, I dropped all the conspiracy United Nations stuff because clearly that wasn't Dick Cheney's agenda. Mm. There was something else going on there, which we can talk about. Mm. But it wasn't that. Mm. And so, but the lesson that empire is murder-suicide mm. still remains. Mm. Whether you know that's why they're doing this or not is kind of beside the point. Mm. And so you know, that's the argument I've been trying to make really ever since then. And I've you know, allied very quickly with antiwar.com who are you know, right-leaning paleo – well, Ramondo back then, Justin Ramondo, <laughs> the head writer there. Right-leaning kind of paleo-libertarian anti-war guys 
own the URL, antiwar.com, always have since 95. Mm. And, you know, I've been holding it down for non-interventionism since then. And, you know, as soon as I started reading them, it was, you know, pretty apparent Ron Paul writes for them, or mm. at least they republish his, his column every week. Mm. And they run Pat Buchanan, who, to my surprise, was anti-war, because I just thought, okay, mm. he's like a right-wing... <laughs> opinion haver right why mm -hmm. why wouldn't he be pro-war with the rest of them and then it turns out for really smart reasons <laughs> that's what it is it's because pat not only reads history books he writes them mm -hmm. and knows better than to do this and fought mm -hmm. to follow this path and has really been anti-war since the end of the cold war 30 years ago mm. and then so you know the right-wing critique of and, and you know, same thing for to this day. We run Daniel Larison at at antiwar dot com, who's a conservative, uh, formerly with the American Conservative Magazine. the The conservative take on peace or for peace is to me always a more compelling one, just because, or at least the more interesting one mm -hmm. to start, mm -hmm. just because it goes against the grain of what people you know are kind of led to expect from the media. You know, the anti-war movement is somehow still day glow and mm. and Janis Joplin from the Summer of Love. But that was like 55 years ago or 54 mm. years ago or something, right? That doesn't have anything to do with the modern anti-war movement, which at this point is led by anti-war veterans like Dan McKnight and the guys at BringOurTroopsHome.us mm. and things like that. Young Americans for Liberty and mm -hmm. Republicans, they support doing this Defend the Guard legislation around the country and all that. So... You know, it's up to libertarians to lead the way for the left and the right. Mm. And of course, there are a lot of great leftists who have stayed very good on war this whole time, too. So I don't <laughs> want to sell them short. And, and I've learned a hell of a lot from them as well. Mm. Sure. Well, so let's get into the book a little bit. Because right. for me, that was extremely interesting. Sort of, you know, you start with what happened in 1979 with Iran and the hostage crisis and everything else. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to have... Uh, sort of repercussions throughout for the rest of the last 42 years. Just, yeah. you know, it set the foreign policy. Can you tell us a little bit more about what led to that actual hostage crisis? Because clearly that that had a traumatic effect on sort of the, you know, at least the bureaucrats in charge or whatever. That scar tissue just hasn't gone away. It's just a part of our foreign policy and has been for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I've been giving this speech to Libertarian Party groups, especially for the last few months, and I usually get a laugh at the beginning when I say our story starts in 1979, by which, of course, I mean 1953, <laughs> because, uh, see, it worked on you too, good. Uh -huh. It's not that funny, but it's a little funny, because that's when they overthrew the government in Iran and reinstalled the Shah Reza Pahlavi and mm -hmm. supported him in power for 25 years, 26 years, mm -hmm. and that was what led to the Iranian Revolution of 79, but even more to your point... Because people conflate these things together. And mm -hmm. in fact, when I'm giving this speech, I kind of pick on people with a little bit grayer hair in the mm -hmm. audience that, you know, I was three, but some of you guys were adults at the time mm -hmm. when this happened. And even you guys get this mixed up and conflate these things. The Iranian Revolution was in February of 79. It started in late 78 and, and really, you know, culminated in February of 79. Parentheses. The CIA and the State Department told Jimmy Carter to tell the French to go ahead and let the Ayatollah Khomeini come home from exile in Paris, France, mm -hmm. to come and inherit the revolution. They said, we know this guy. Mm -hmm. He helped us overthrow Mossadegh back in 1953. We can work with him. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, they usually leave that part out, don't they? Uh -huh. Then the Ayatollah comes, inherits the revolution, seizes power in February, and then throughout the whole year, for 10 months... The Carter government was trying to get along with the Ayatollah. Mm -hmm. The Israelis, by the way, stayed friends with the Iranians through all of this, and they didn't turn on them until 1993. Mm -hmm. Whole other different story there. They weren't so worried about Islamic fundamentalism in, <laughs> the, in the hands of the Shiites at that time. But the Americans stayed friends with them and were, in fact, passing the Iranians' warnings about mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein's intentions. He had just seized power in a coup in Iraq next door. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And they were also warning him about the Soviets' intentions mm -hmm. and fears that the Soviets might invade. Mm -hmm. So then, as you were getting to the point there, what was behind the hostage crisis? Mm -hmm. The hostage crisis was in November, mm -hmm. after all these months of trying to cooperate with them, what had happened was David Rockefeller, the chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank, mm. had convinced Zbigniew Brzezinski and Jimmy Carter to allow the Shah into the United States for medical treatment. Mm. 
And that was taken as a signal that America was going to try to nurse him back to health and reinstall him back in power and do mm. a coup and cancel the revolution. Mm. So they seized all the diplomats at the embassy in Tehran, which is where the last coup was plotted during Operation Ajax in 53. Not to justify what they did, but just to show there's some context behind here's a burning American flag and them pronouncing us the great Satan mm. and all of that. And in fact, it's important to note, I guess, if you like it, the term blowback was mm. coined by a CIA historian named Wilbur mm. in 1953 after the coup there mm. against Mossadegh. Mm. And he said, CIA officers involved in operations like this must be wary of future blowback to come as a consequence of this thing. Mm. So that was where the term was coined, and it came to mean not just consequences as just a pure synonym, mm. but consequences of, oh, sorry, long-term consequences mm. of secret foreign policies mm. so that when they come, the American people are left essentially unaware and susceptible to false explanations mm. of what's behind the problem. So if you watch Nightline with Ted Koppel, you see the American flag burning and some guy in a funny hat saying that America is the great Satan. Well, apparently they hate us because they think we're Satan, <laughs> right? And Ted Koppel never says, no, we've been torturing these people for 26 years. You'd be pissed off too. Mm -hmm. That part of the story doesn't get included. So all we know is, ooh, is Shiite Islamic fundamentalist revolution means anti-Americanism and means a danger to us. And that's essentially the baseline of Americans' understanding of Iran in the last 40 years ever since then, mm. right? Now then, the way the story goes, that same year, the Carter government started backing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan mm. against the communist government in Kabul. Mm. And they said at the time their purpose was to try to bait the Russians into invading Afghanistan. Mm. And here's why they did that. Because that should be, for people who know the history of the Cold War, that might sound a little funny, right? Because didn't we have a containment policy where we were trying to contain communism forever? Well, but here was the thinking in the Carter years, was, well, the American people have Vietnam syndrome, mm. which they thought was a mental illness, the American people's <laughs> reluctance to want to go back to war like we had done in Korea and Vietnam. Mm. And so they said, well, if the American people have Vietnam syndrome because of how horrible the Vietnam War was, maybe we can trick the Soviets into doing the same thing to themselves. Mm. We'll give them their own Vietnam. Mm. Now, they didn't want to bait them into expanding into West Germany, but I know, how about Afghanistan? Those people are expendable, right? <laughs> so we'll bait the Soviets into intervening in Afghanistan, and then we'll give them their own Vietnam. Mm. Well, that's exactly what happened. Soviets invaded Christmas in 79. Mm. Although I don't think... And I admit in the book, I really don't think it was the Carter government's policy that legitimately baited them into it. I think they did it because their sock puppet dictator was a basket case and was doing a terrible job of holding things together. And when they invaded, the first thing they did was the KGB took him out back and shot him in the head and replaced <laughs> him with a new guy. So that was really why they invaded and kind of took authority over the communist side of the war. But still, same difference. That was the thinking behind the American policy, was let's deliberately try to bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan. So then they do, and the Carter government panics. Because here, this is actually right after the hostage crisis breaks out. So now there's no chance we're going to really have an in with the Iranians. There's still this destabilized revolutionary regime. We just deliberately baited the Soviets into Afghanistan, and now... We look at the map and we think, oh, no, they could roll right into Iran. Mm. And then they would dominate the Persian Gulf. <laughs> and they could take a left turn at Albuquerque and go around the mountains of Pakistan and seize the port of Karachi. Uh -huh. And you have this massive expansion of Soviet power <laughs> from the Persian Gulf all the way over to Islamabad or something, right? We can't have that. So in just a month later in the State of the Union address in 1980... In reaction to the invasion of Afghanistan that they had deliberately tried to provoke, mm. the panicked Carter government announced the Carter Doctrine of American permanent military supremacy over the Persian Gulf. Mm. This is now an American lake, and any power, read the USSR, who tries to dominate the Persian Gulf in our place, we will treat that as an act of war against the United States itself. In other words, a war guarantee equivalent to what we'd given West Germany and France and Britain. Mm. If the you know, 
or Canada, mm. right? If the Soviets ever messed with them. So, and then as part of that Carter Doctrine, they started building up bases in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and UAE, and they gave the green light to the new fascist, you know, Baathist tyranny in Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, that America would support him if he would invade Iran. <laughs> and that's exactly what Saddam Hussein did, was invade Iran. Because, see, he had his own problem. He was sitting on a supermajority Shiite Arab population. And he was worried, in fact, some of them were already crossing the border to go to Iran to take part in the revolution. Mm. So they have like these three major characteristics of their identity. Mm. They're Shiites, they're Arabs, and they're Iraqis. Mm. And Hussein was worried they would choose their Shiite identity over their Arab and Iraqi identity and side with their co-religionists. To a degree, it was already happening. Mm. And so his solution was to conscript them all and <laughs> send them to war against Iran instead to try to overthrow the revolution at that time. Mm. So that's how Jimmy Carter kicked all of this off, mm. right? Because then into the Ronald Reagan administration, what do they do? Essentially, they continued both of those policies all the way through. Mm. The only wrinkle was that they added support for Saddam Hussein, you know, money for him to buy chemical weapons from the French and the Germans to use against the Iranians, including sarin and Taban nerve gas and the worst chemical warfare since World War One. And they continue to support the Mujahideen mm -hmm. only. Oh, and I should say in the Iran Iraq war, they also backed Iran for a time, they would switch off back and forth. And there was the whole Iran Contra scandal where they're selling missiles to Iran through Israel. Mm. And that gets the most attention, really the most famous thing because how scandalous it was in the press, but they really provided much more support for Saddam Hussein during that whole time. Mm. And then of course, they continue to support not just the Afghan Mujahideen, but the Arab Afghan army, mm. which meant thousands, tens of thousands of recruits from all across the Middle East, and as far as the Philippines and Chechnya and even the USA, to go and fight in Afghanistan with the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet invasion. And of course, as I think everybody knows, that's where Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and the later leaders of Al-Qaeda earned their stripes and their respect as warriors and terrorist group leaders there. Bin Laden himself was wounded three times in battle fighting against the communists. Mm. And a billionaire's son, he slept on the dirt floor of the cave with his men and the rest of that thing. And so earned, you know, had all of that kind of you know leadership qualities that were respected by his peers at the time. And when the leader of the Azam group, Abdul Azam, died, he took it over and merged it with Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and that's the group that became Al-Qaeda. And their number one, well, I'm skipping ahead. Mm -hmm. So then Reagan's successor, H.W. Bush, comes, and he gets into a war with Iraq over Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, mm -hmm. which was a dispute over war debts from the Iran-Iraq war, <laughs> right? So it, so the Iranian revolution is blowback from the coup of 53. So in response to that, America backs Saddam Hussein against them. Mm -hmm. Then the blowback of backing Saddam Hussein against them is that Saddam invades Kuwait <laughs> and threatens British interests there. And so Margaret Thatcher gives H.W. Bush a backbone transplant, <laughs> she called it, and had America go to war against Saddam Hussein's Iraq, their best friend from the other day, is now became you know worse than Hitler and hell bent on conquering the entire Middle East and dominating all of global oil supplies, all this absolute ridiculous nonsense that they knew was a lie at the time. And they launched that horrible war. So then, hope everybody's with me here, right? <laughs> we're really mad the Shiites took over Iran. So we back, and at the same time, we're trying to get the Soviets to invade Afghanistan to bog them down, right? But then we back Saddam Hussein to contain the Iranian revolution and keep it out of Iraq. Mm -hmm. But then Hussein gets into a dispute with, over war debts with Kuwait. So he invades Kuwait. So then we invade and, and conquer him and force him out of Kuwait. But then, and people remember this, probably if they remember this at all, mm -hmm. they remember this from the movie Three Kings with Marky Mark and Ice Cube <laughs> and George Clooney. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. So this movie is a gold heist movie, right? But it takes place in the aftermath of Iraq War I mm -hmm. when the Americans are occupying all of the south of Iraq 
And in the setting, in the background of the movie, is the Shiite uprising uh -huh. to try to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And then in the movie, you see Saddam Hussein crushes that uprising. Mm -hmm. And some of the refugees flee into Iran at the end. Mm -hmm. Okay? Well, this was the great Bay of Pigs stab in the back of H.W. Bush of the spring of 91. Just a few weeks after the end of the war, he encouraged over Voice of America radio, and he had the Air Force drop leaflets to encourage the Iraqi Shiites and Kurds to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. Mm. And they thought this was a great idea right up until they didn't. Mm. And they stopped and they changed their mind. And they let Saddam Hussein keep his helicopters and his tanks and kill approximately 100,000 people in crushing that insurrection. Mm. Why'd they do that? It was because they realized halfway through the uprising, well, wait a minute. We just spent, because this is, you know, Ronald Reagan's men, the H.W. Oh. Bush administration, these are all, this was Reagan's vice president is H.W. Bush. The chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, had been Reagan's national security advisor. Mm -hmm. The Secretary of State, James Baker, had been Reagan's chief of staff, right? Mm -hmm. This is the holdover, third mm -hmm. term, the Reagan third term here. And these same men said, well, wait a minute. We just spent 10 years backing Saddam Hussein <laughs> to contain the Iranian revolution. Mm -hmm. Now we're importing it into Iraq. Mm -hmm. And here they come. The Iranians and the Iraqis who had chosen Iran's side in the war, they start coming across the border to inherit the revolution. So the Americans choke, and they let Saddam Hussein crush and kill them all, right? But then that becomes the excuse to stay at the bases in Saudi Arabia that they'd built up for the war. Mm -hmm. They'd promised they'd go, mm -hmm. and now they're going to wage a no-fly zone mm -hmm. to protect the Shiites and the Kurds from Saddam Hussein, and they're going to just patrol it indefinitely until Saddam Hussein is gone, while at the same time enforcing all the sanctions from before the war, never repealing any of the sanctions, even after he gave in and withdrew, under the claim that he was illegally still keeping weapons of mass destruction, even though they knew mm -hmm. that he had destroyed every last bit of it by the end of 1991. Mm -hmm. And they just kept that pretension up, and they kept those bases in Saudi in order to wage that no-fly zone. And just on the face of it, you can tell that's obviously a hoax from the very beginning. The insurrection had been crushed. Mm -hmm. The idea that Saddam Hussein is just going to keep hunting and killing every last Shiite man, woman, and child in the country until they're all dead is complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely determined to crush the insurrection, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But that they needed American air cover to keep them from him just genociding them all or something like that was just obviously a lie. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to just be a liar pretending to believe that. Nobody believed that. Mm -hmm. But that was the excuse to stay. And then that was what turned Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's Arab-Afghan army against the United States. First and foremost was American combat forces stationed at bases in Saudi Arabia in order to bomb and blockade Iraq throughout the 1990s, through the end of the 20th century, through the rest of the Bill Clinton years. So there, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan had built this menace up. George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton had essentially stabbed them in the back or provoked them into turning against the United States. And then to make the Clinton years very short, even while they were attacking us all through the 1990s, the Clinton government kept backing them. And just real quick, they had tried to bomb the World Trade Center in 1993. Mm -hmm. There was the failed plot against the tunnels and the UN building in 95 and the Saudi training facility attack in 95. The Kobar Towers attack of 96, which is a really important one because who got killed? 19 American airmen, mm. state pilots mm -hmm. st in their barracks killed, guys who were stationed there to bomb Iraq from, the, from that base. And the American people never got the truth about that because the Bill Clinton government, along with Louis Free's FBI, they blamed it, and the Saudis, they blamed it on Iran. And when really it was Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who did that attack. But they said, no, it was Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah, which is some minuscule group that had no motive to attack the United States whatsoever. So if they had told the truth to the American people what was going on there, well, apparently some really radical right-wing Saudi, you know, you know, former friends of Ronald Reagan are really mad that we are bombing Iraq from these bases in Saudi. Maybe we would have got out, maybe not, but at least we could have discussed it and talked about what, what it is that we're doing there and why we have this policy on autopilot like this, bombing the people of Iraq when we already beat them in the war. What are we doing? You know, continuing to do this. Then, of course, the Africa embassies of 98, uh, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Nairobi, Kenya, where hundreds were killed. And then 
the USS Cole, where 17 sailors were killed in the port of Aden, Yemen in 2000. During this whole time, Bill Clinton's back in him anyway. During this whole time, Bill Clinton takes the Mujahideen side in Bosnia and in Kosovo, which was directly against the Russians, and was even supported the Chechens against the Russians as well, the CIA and the Saudis did, and also supported training Uyghur fighters in Afghanistan for use against the Chinese. And that was going on through the summer of 2001, that America was supporting bin Ladenite camps in Afghanistan for use against the Chinese. Now, they're trying to play this double game here and thinking that, well, if we continue to use these guys and back them, then maybe they'll leave us alone or it'll be worth it. What are they going to do anyway? Right? As they said, they used to say, terrorism is a small price to pay for being a superpower. <laughs> and so part of being a superpower is using terrorism against others. Mm. Get a little bit of blowback. Mm. What's it going to hurt? You know? Mm. And then, but so the Bin Ladenites, they were mad about the, the bases in Saudi and the bombing of Iraq and, of course, support for Israel and their occupations of the Palestinians and the Lebanese mm. and support for the dictatorships around the Middle East. But their strategy was to goad us into an overreaction mm. when i say this people get mad at me like i'm acquitting george w bush and i'm saying he's innocent because he's a fool mm. but the reality was he was a cynic and that's what they were betting on mm. right that this is a guy who will exploit a crisis in order to get away with bloody murder and extend the empire as far as he can mm. but bin laden knew as all wise men do that all empires fall mm. and that if you want to destroy america there's only one way to do it you make them destroy themselves by through overextension, imperial overextension. And so that was the goal all along. And that was obvious in the 90s, and they talked about it in the 90s. We will do to you what we did to the Russians, bog you down and bleed you to bankruptcy. In fact, that comes from the 2004 speech. But they, they said the same thing in the 1990s before the fact, that the whole purpose was to replicate the Soviets' war in Afghanistan with America in the role of the USSR, mm -hmm. and then to get the same result, to break the empire the long way, the hard way, and to force us out. And Bin Laden's son actually gave an interview to Rolling Stone magazine in 2010, where, so Bin Laden was still alive for another year at that point. And he's saying, in Clinton's time, he sent a few cruise missiles after my father, and he didn't get him. Mm -hmm. But you guys have spent hundreds of billions of dollars, and here we are 10 years into the war, and you still don't have him either. Mm -hmm. America in Clinton's time was very smart, not like the bull that runs after the red scarf. Mm. And then he says, I was in Afghanistan in the summer of 2001. Or in, I was in Afghanistan in 2000 in the election. Mm. And when W. Bush won the election, my father was so happy. <laughs> so see, he wasn't afraid. Oh, no, a macho tough guy who's going to send his B-52s. The idea was wonderful. A macho tough guy who's going to send his B-52s. A perfect mark who can be provoked into going big and to driving the empire into the ground. And that's what he says. He says, this is, he's quoting bin, Osama bin Laden himself. This is the kind of president he needs. One who will attack and break the bank and break the country. Mm. And look, this is Omar bin Laden. He ain't the brightest guy. He's not Hamza the terrorist. He's not a terrorist. Mm. You read the thing, and I'm not trying to insult the guy, but I'm just saying, this is not a Machiavellian manipulator. Mm. He's just directly quoting the old man. Mm -hmm. He's just saying exactly what he was told. Mm. Oh, good. This W. Bush, it'll, watch, I'm going to slap him in the face and I'm going to make him trip down the stairs. Mm. It'll be easy as pie kind of a thing. You know what I mean? They saw him exactly for what he was. And then that's exactly what happened. They furnish him a crisis, which just like the Iranian Revolution, the American people, it was blowback. In other words, long-term consequences of secret foreign policies. Mm. So the American people didn't know what was going on. So Bush could say... Well, they hate us because we're free, <laughs> and Al-Qaeda is the Taliban, and Al-Qaeda is Saddam Hussein, uh -huh. and Al-Qaeda is the Ayatollah, uh -huh. and Al-Qaeda is whatever I want. Hmm. As Dick Cheney said about Iraq, well, this is, you know, sort of the geographical area where this kind of thing emanates from. Yeah, that's a little vague, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. In other words, we're hunting some Saudis and Egyptians on Afghanistan's eastern border, uh -huh. And you want to go to Baghdad. Uh -huh. So you're just bluffing. And, yeah. you, you know, and then so that was what they did. They let bin Laden escape. I make the case in both books. Hell, the, the Delta Force and the CIA make the case that Bush let bin Laden go and refused to let them chase him down. Mm. And then, and they did so quite obviously 
so they could keep your mama afraid that Saddam Hussein would ally with Osama bin Laden and use chemical weapons in your city mm. or even nuclear weapons. And Bush said over and over again, imagine September 11th mm-hmm. if all those hijackers had had weapons of mass destruction. When Saddam Hussein had no weapons and the CIA absolutely knew that, I show in the book how they absolutely knew that was a fact. They had two high-level spies at the very top of Saddam Hussein's government, Naji Sabri and what's his name, Habush, who both said, dude, swear to God, we destroyed it all. You guys know that. And they knew, and they, I can go on, but they knew it was a lie. And they knew that Saddam Hussein was terrified of Osama bin Laden. And in fact, right before the invasion, bin Laden put out a podcast saying that, you know, all, you know, true believing Iraqis ought to rise up and overthrow the socialist infidel Saddam Hussein and also fight the Americans too when they come. You know, that was Osama's position on Saddam Hussein with the clean-shaven chin and the French beret. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, he's such an Islamist terrorist suicide bomber. Well, oh, well, so go before, ahead. I'll be but, quiet now. You say something. Well, so that's I, I how they got us into this mess. Yeah, so I, I want to stop here because there's just so much stuff here that's just so interesting. Because as you make the case, we started in 53, installing a Shah that was essentially a puppet dictator. And you can understand why the Iranians would be so upset about having being essentially a vassal state of the United States for something like 25 years. Then you get this uh, Islamic revolution, which is sort of like instigated a little bit, at least by Jimmy Carter, who sends the Ayatollah back to Iran, (laughs) who, who leads the revolution. And then you know, I don't know if it's an act of compassion or stupidity or something. They take the Shah back into the United States to nurse him back to health, which the Iranians interpret as, okay, you're, you're going to overthrow this revolution. And they invade the embassy. And, you know, we have the hostage crisis. And that, in turn, leads to the Iran-Iraq war because they want a revenge for all of the stuff that's happening with the hostages. And Iraq, of course, racks up debt, and that leads to the first Iraq war because they had this, you know, war debt from, you know, eight years of fighting Iran on behalf of the United States. And, of course, the U.S. invades Iran, Iraq, stabs a bunch of people in the back, but they're trying to figure out how to keep balance between the different powers mm-hmm. and that entire- Oh yeah, I skipped that part where it was the Israeli-based mm-hmm. insistence, you know, their insistence on the strategy of dual containment, <laughs> where Bill Clinton actually was interested in talking with Iraq and Iran, mm. and the Israelis said no, because now that you've bombed Iraq so bad, they're not strong enough to contain Iran anymore. <laughs> so now America has to stay in Saudi to contain them both. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge part of the reason that they kept the bases there in Saudi throughout the 1990s. And that in turn motivates, you know, Osama bin Laden because, you know, that territory is sacred to especially a Sunni Muslim like him. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what caused all of the strife and his strategy to bring the U.S. fight to them by, you know, doing the planes operation, which ended in 9-11. And that in turn caused the Iraq invasion. So this is where we are. It's And this is what I really liked about your book. It's telling sort of like this story that starts from 1953. And these things don't just happen out of nowhere, right? Right. Like the Iran hostage crisis, the, you know, invasion of Iraq, the first or the the first Iraq war, you know, 9-11. All of these things don't happen out of nowhere. There's motives for all of this stuff. And most of it is people invading your home or installing a puppet government or, you know, doing something that you don't like. It seems so obvious to me, but it's not something that we're ever told. Why yeah. is that? Well, so it's interesting, right? Like, in fact, just the things that you just named there is these are all things that everyone has heard of, right? It's no mm-hmm. secret that Ronald Reagan backed Saddam Hussein in the mm-hmm. 1980s and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. But what we don't ever get is the through line. Mm-hmm. What we don't ever get is why... This was the result of the last intervention, so now they had to do this to try to clean that up, and that led to this, and that led to this, and that led to this, and that's all I'm doing. You know, you hear, like I threw in there that Clinton and then even W. Bush were backing the Taliban, training the Uyghurs Mm -hmm. against China, even as late as right before September 11th. Mm -hmm. Something like that is not very well known. Mm. However, things like that are actually not the point of the book, like the, Mm -hmm. you know, surprise operation, something you never heard of. Uh What it really is, is I'm telling you the story of your lifetime of American Middle Eastern (laughs) intervention and just 
drawing you the through line mm -hmm. so that at some point you realize like i'm just filling in the pieces of the puzzle that you've already been working on your whole life mm -hmm. and i'm just showing a little consistency in the thing and getting you to understand why it is that they made the choices that they made mm -hmm. like for example why were the israelis so intent on keeping the clinton government in saudi mm -hmm. it was because the bush government had just bombed saddam hussein's armored divisions <laughs> off the face of the earth so now how was saddam hussein supposed to contain iran well you better do it whatever mm -hmm. everything is trying to make up for their last screw up right mm -hmm. So then the same thing continues on. Mm -hmm. W. Bush exploits the chaos of September 11th and, you know, stops by Afghanistan for public relations reasons and then heads straight to Iraq on the bogus threat that Saddam's going to give weapons that he doesn't have to this terrorist that he's terrified of to use against us. And then when they do that, what happened? Mm. W. Bush essentially picked up right where his father had left off in 1991 mm. in backing that Shiite uprising. Mm. And rather than stabbing them in the back and leaving them high and dry, W. Bush led their parade all the way to Baghdad mm. and gave them total control of the capital city. Mm. When you think back of all the chaos of Iraq War II, mm. 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, through that whole time, what was all the fighting about? <laughs> They never said. They, I mean, and believe me, I was consuming media at the time. You had to read it, that's for sure. On TV, it's us and the Iraqi people versus the terrorists who are trying mm -hmm. to thwart democracy, right? Mm -hmm. And they never said, well, we're on the Shiite side against the Sunnis. The 60% supermajority Arab uh, population in alliance with the 20% Kurds who are Sunnis but are not Arabs mm -hmm. and were allied with the Shiites, not the Sunni Arabs at that time and still to this day versus the 20% Sunni Arabs who used to lord it over them all in Saddam Hussein's Baathist regime, right? Mm. And so we're fighting for the supermajority against the minority that had the power mm. and are fighting like hell to try to hold on to it. It's why they fought so bitterly and why they even were willing to ally with the worst kind of bin Ladenite terrorists mm. from Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Syria, Libya, and wherever, who came just like the 1980s war in Afghanistan that we backed against the Soviets. <laughs> this was our friends, the Saudis. Mm. We're backing this whole effort against the Americans and the Shiites mm. in Iraq War II. And this was, you know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq were the worst part of that. Mm. And out of the 4,500 Americans who died in Iraq War II, about 4,000 of them died fighting this Sunni-based insurgency mm. that was, you know, trying to resist this american effort for to let the shiites take over and help the shiites take over the country mm. but now that was a big stupid idiot thing to do <laughs> thought you guys hated the ayatollah uh -huh. that's why hw bush stabbed the uprising in the back in 91 mm. if we do this we're importing the iranian revolution that we're so terrified of into iraq mm. well that's all w bush did and he did it, I'll, I'll be brief here because we just don't have time for it, but it's all in the book. He did it because the neoconservatives who put Israel first and think that they're smart are not smart. And their idea was if we overthrow Saddam, then primarily Turkey, but then also Jordan and Israel and America will be dominant over the Sunnis and they will rule over the Shiites and everybody else and it'll be great. And that was just completely stupid and wrong and that's not how the war worked out at all. And they'd been sold that line by a Shiite Iraqi exile mm -hmm. who had every interest in getting them to believe that. Mm. But, of course, that's not at all how the war played out. So now this is really important, especially, you know, for people who are really interested in this and want to know this. Jot this down, email it to yourself or something, text it to your mom to text you back later so you don't forget. The Redirection by Seymour Hirsch in the New Yorker magazine, mm. 2007. Foundational, right? Mm. This is how you understand... America's policy in the Middle East after Iraq War II, mm. or at least starting in the middle of Iraq War II. Mm. Okay? And it goes basically like this. Oops, we just empowered Iran's best <laughs> friends and gave them Baghdad. We weren't trying to do that. Mm. That's exactly the opposite of what we want to do. You know, it, Iran, in fact, the, the reason the neocons were so intent on doing this is because they wanted to break Iran's alliance with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon mm. and also with the Baathists in Damascus, Syria, mm. who, unlike the Baathists in Iraq, were dominated by the Alawites and the Shiites there. Mm. So they were trying to break Iranian power mm. by getting rid of Saddam. And here all they did, which was stupid on the face of it, right? Yeah, yeah. He that was the check on sense. it. Yeah. doesn't make any sense. They said, well, we're going to have to do better than Saddam. We're going to have to figure out something else, and then that'll be the break on Iran. Totally doesn't work. They put Iran's best friends from the Daba Party and the Supreme Islamic Council in power in Baghdad. 
And then by the end of 2005, beginning of 2006, some of these, uh, the brighter neoconservatives like Zalmay Khalilzad and Elliot Abrams and others said, look, we really screwed up here mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can't undo it now, right? We've won this war for the Shiite side. So now we need the redirection back to the Saudi king. Mm. And you can read it in the WikiLeaks, thanks to Julian Assange, who's right at this moment rotting in solitary confinement for bringing us this information in the Belmarsh prison in, in the UK. That Zalmay Khalilzad went and got on his knees before the king, proverbially at least, mm. metaphorically, and said, Your Highness, really sorry about that. What can we do to make it up to you? <laughs> and the Saudi king says, and you can read this in the WikiLeaks, wikileaks.org, He says, I don't understand. It was always us and you and Saddam Hussein against the Iranians. Uh Now you've given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. Uh And what are you going to do about it? (laughs) Right? We have silver platters. Theirs are very golden and fancy. Uh And Khalil Saad says, we're at your service, Your Majesty, and we'll make it up to you. We'll do whatever we can. So this is not Obama. This is still during W. Bush. This is 2007. This is happening in 06, reported in 07. And then immediately they started backing Fatah al-Islam, a bin Ladenite group in Lebanon against Hezbollah, Mm -hmm. started backing the Muslim Brotherhood, which is Al-Qaeda light in Syria, Mm -hmm. and started backing a group called Jandala in Iran, who were bin Laden heavy, man. These guys were suicide bomber, head chopper, you know, maniacs there. Mm -hmm. And then they also were backing PJAC, which is a leftist Kurdish group in Iran, not bin Ladenite in their focus, but they're related to the Turkish PKK Mm. and the Syrian YPG. They're kind of the Iranian branch of that leftist group there and backing them also against Iran. Mm. So then I emphasize this because this is the policy that explains Barack Obama's Middle East adventures for eight years. People get caught up in the conspiracy theory that the guy's a secret Muslim from Kenya and he's loyal to bin Laden and the terrorists against us and that's why he does all this stuff. And the reality was Obama was nothing but W. Bush. And yes, he did side with Al-Qaeda. He did. And it was high treason. But it's not because he's a secret Muslim from Kenya. It's because he's a centrist. It's because he is the establishment. And that was the policy. We screwed up. We gave Iran and their friends Baghdad. Now we got to figure out how to tilt the balance back toward our friends. So the first thing he did was go to Libya. Now that wasn't an anti-Shiite move or anti-Iranian move, but it was a pro-Saudi move. They hated Gaddafi for various reasons, mostly for making fun of them for wearing dresses and for selling out the Palestinians all the time and stuff. And they had shorted them on a gas deal or something like that. So the Saudis and the Qataris had it in for Gaddafi. Hillary Clinton thought this would be a great public relations stunt for her campaign for 2016, smart power and all this stuff. And long story short, they launched the war for the Libyan veterans of Iraq War II. Just like bin Laden and all those guys were the ones who had come home from Afghanistan after the 1980s, these were all the guys who came home from Iraq War II, where they had fought with Al-Qaeda in Iraq against the Americans and the Shiites there. As soon as they get to Libya... And just at the exact same time that Obama is killing Osama in Pakistan Mm. in the spring of 2011, he's taken their side in North Africa. And he fights the whole war against Gaddafi. It's for the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and Ansar al-Sharia. And the next thing you know, Gaddafi's dead. They're still at war ever since then. Mm -hmm. Chattel slavery uh, Mm -hmm. has been reintroduced and the entire refugee crisis and all the consequences that came from the Libya war and spreading the jihadist war into Mali and Burkina Faso and uh, into Chad and Niger, just all through North and West Africa is just making Boko Haram six times worse than they already were Mm -hmm. and just everything's an absolute catastrophe. And then they took all the jihadis and the guns and they shipped them off to Syria for the next invasion there. And this was how, this is, you know, people know about in, on September 11, 2012, there's the catastrophe of Ambassador Stevens being killed with the, some CIA Benghazi. officers at Benghazi. But the limited hangout is, well, why didn't Hillary Clinton save them fast enough? And why didn't they have good enough security? When the real question, the real scandal is, why was Ambassador Stevens committing high treason and allying with Al-Qaeda, Libyan Al-Qaeda, to ship these jihadist bin Ladenite terrorists and all their weapons off to fight the war in Syria? And how could anyone think that you could station a full-fledged American ambassador in the center of an Al-Qaeda hornet's nest and that he wouldn't get stung? 
And of course he got stung. It was in the middle of this covert action led by, at that time, David Petraeus, the director of the CIA, mm-hmm. and Hillary Clinton at state to ship all the guns and all of the terrorists off to Syria. Now, why Syria? Again, because Assad, although he's a Baathist and an Alawite, is allied with the Shiites, friends with Iran, and friends with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And that's against Israel's interests. And so, according to Jamie Rubin, Hillary Clinton's advisor, which he wrote her privately, we can read in the WikiLeaks, and a slightly different version is published at foreignpolicy.com, the real reason for regime change in Syria is to protect Israel from Hezbollah or from Iran by way of Hezbollah. Mm. And so that's what it was all about. So the same redirection policy, making it up to the, the Sunni king and, <laughs> and the Sunni Arab alliance, including the Israelis. And so that was when they launched a massive project in Syria, 2011, mm. that lasted through you know 2015 at least, and that included the Americans, the Saudis, the Qataris, the Jordanians, the Turks, and the Israelis, all working together, funneling billions of dollars a year in, and they call the Jimmy the moderate rebels. Oh, these are all very nice guys. This guy's a pharmacist, and this guy's a farmer, and this guy's a doctor, and this guy's a lawyer, and this guy's a school teacher, and they're the ones leading the militia. Never mind the suicide bombing that just happened right over there, and never mind this guy getting his head chopped off because he won't convert from being a Druze to you know whatever these kooks believe. And then and they just put up that front. And from the very beginning, and I could prove this to you, going back to 2011, the very first year of the Arab Spring, you know, they talk about, oh, Timber Sycamore started in 2013 and all of this. Man, we knew from April 2011, April 2011. So Bin Laden's body, you know, just getting devoured by coyotes in the mountain, in the Hindu Kush <laughs> mountains where the Navy SEALs had thrown his, his, the pieces of his corpse, not all the way cold yet. And Al-Qaeda in Iraq starts coming over the border from Iraq to fight. And Prince Bandar bin Sultan, then the new head of intelligence in Saudi Arabia, the infamous Bandar Bush, former ambassador, is, according to foreignpolicy.com, sending fighters off, again, just like in the 80s and all the Al-Qaeda terrorists who came home from the effort in the 80s, all the Saudis who'd come home from Iraq War II were now leading the effort going off to fight uh, along with the Libyans in the war in Syria. And then that was, they called it the Al-Nusra Front, which is something like the Association of Helpers or something like that. But it's just Al-Qaeda. It's Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria. That's what it is. And they fought from 2011 through 13, and then there was a massive split. I'll try to hurry up now. There was a massive split between Al- the essentially the Syrian-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria and the Iraqi-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. And that's, as we know, the name ISIS. They started out, they renamed, after Zarqawi was killed in 06, they called themselves the Islamic State of Iraq. And then once, then they had joined and called themselves al-Nusra, and then when they broke off from al-Nusra, they called themselves the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or Iraq and the Levant, or Mesopotamia and the Levant, whatever you translate it. And they seized all of Western Syria. And that was in the spring of 2013. And they told Zawahiri, the leader of Al-Qaeda, to go to hell. You can make your law. Let's see you enforce it from your basement where you're hiding in Pakistan, old man, kind of thing. And now the Saudi, do- the Al-Qaeda doctrine, again, remember, was to provoke the Americans into invading Afghanistan in order to bog us down and bleed us to bankruptcy and force us out the long and the hard way. Only then could they wage their revolutions around the region. They didn't anticipate we were going to re- wage all these revolutions for them. We're going to get rid of the socialist infidel Saddam Hussein. We're going to get rid of the socialist infidel Muammar Gaddafi. And now we're going for the socialist infidel Bashar al-Assad and doing all their dirty work for him. So possibly when Baghdadi told, you know, Zawahiri said, just fight. Don't create a state yet. The Americans will bomb it. And I guess Baghdadi thought, well, I don't know. The Americans have been on my side for the past few <laughs> years here. I think I'm going to go ahead and take my chances. And he rolled right into Western Iraq in the spring of 2014, early June 2014, early summer. He seized Mosul, Fallujah, Tikrit, and Bayaji, and eventually Ramadi, and created, erased the border between Iraq and Syria, drawn by the Europeans after World War I, and declared the Islamic Caliphate, mm. which, if you remember the W. Bush years, this was the wildest war propaganda of guys like Glenn Beck, right? That there's this Islamo-fascist caliphate, and it's out there to get us. Well, you look at the map, 
There's all nation states in the way. Where are you going to put this caliphate? There's no caliphate. Was it the lost continent of Atlantis? Uh-huh. There's no caliphate, right? Uh-huh. But and it was also, of course, Bin Laden's wildest dream. This is what they were trying to achieve, right? <laughs> this, but that could have never happened. But then W. Bush turned all of Western Iraq into essentially stateless, lawless Sunni jihadistan, and then Barack Obama did the same thing for Eastern Syria. And so this guy, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is able to walk right into the Grand Mosque in Mosul and get up there on the balcony like Mussolini and declare himself the Caliph Ibrahim, divinely ordained leader of the Islamo-fascist caliphate of Glenn Beck's wild and, and Osama bin Laden's wildest dreams. And then, of course, in 2014, and you know they, they waited a month to let the pressure build. And then in August 2014, Barack Obama launched Iraq War III in order to side with the same Shiites that they wish they hadn't fought for in Iraq (laughs) War II, the same Shiites that they hated so much that that was why they had built up the caliphate against them in the first place, Uh was to spite them. But now they'd built it up, and it was such a big, ugly embarrassment Uh that they had to turn around and take the Shiites' side and go to war against the caliphate. And at one point, you even had the Americans, as much as they curse about the Iranians, especially when they were taking Tikrit, and I cite this in the book, you had Americans saying, well, we got to admit, it, we're flying air cover for the Iranians down there, mm. rousting you know, their Quds Force, leading the Iraqi militia forces against ISIS. Mm. And then there's even a quote of an Iranian Quds Force officer saying, we got to admit, the Americans are flying our air cover right now <laughs> to fight against the Islamic State. And then, so of course, that was the war that lasted through Donald Trump's first year in power, in you know through 2017, and then as Trump and his people said over and over again, even when he was trying to get out of Syria, remember they wouldn't let him. He mm-hmm. backed down twice in 2018 and 19 for trying to get out of Syria, and if you ask him or them or any of them, they say, "Why are we there?" Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we're here to fight ISIS, ISIS. But every once in a while, they admit the real truth. They're there because of Iran. That's the reason they built up ISIS in the first place, because they hate Iran. It's why they went after Saddam, because this harebrained idea that that would weaken Iran. And so, um, you know, even though they're embedded with the Shiite forces in Iraq fighting ISIS to this day, they keep getting into these tangles with Shiite militias there, (laughs) where supposedly they're attacked by Shiite militias and then attack them back and threaten to start Iraq War IV. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to turn around and fight the entire Iraq war all over again and cleanse the capital city of Shiites and make it a Sunni city now? Never going to happen, right? And the whole thing's a disaster. But then, so this goes also to why we're committing the treasonous and genocidal war in Yemen right now, too, was because this was essentially, at the time that Barack Obama was making the nuclear deal with Iran, which they weren't making nukes in the first place, but the nuclear deal, long story short, locked down their program and expanded inspections more than ever before to just double extra, make sure that, you know, far beyond any other inspection regime, that to make sure they're not making nukes. But the Saudis were concerned that we're going to start tilting back toward Iran like it was under the Shah and use Iran more to hem them in. And that was not true. Okay, Barack Obama is dumb, but he's not stupid, right? There's no way that he would have thought, even if he wanted to, that he would have thought that American politics would allow him to abandon the Saudis and turn back toward the Iranians. That was just nowhere in the cards. But the Saudis needed to be concerned about this. We just fought a war for Iran and Iraq War II. And... And Iraq War Three, yeah. and, and Iraq War Three. That's right, and Iraq War Three. And so now you're going to make this deal with them. We want some reassurance. And here, a Houthi group. I'm skipping the backstory in Yemen for time, but a Houthi group had come out of the north of Yemen and seized the capital city of Sanaa. And the Saudis said, "Well, if you like us so much, then help us start this war against the Houthis in Yemen." And now, they had seized the capital city the Houthis had in the end of 2014, mm. and you can read it in the Wall Street Journal and Al Monitor mm. that in January of 2015, our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, he was then a four-star general, the commander of Central Command, mm. and he was working with the Houthis, passing them intelligence to use to kill al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The guys that had bombed the coal, the guys that had helped coordinate the September 11th attack, the guys that tried to blow up the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bombing, and later did the Charlie Hebdo attack, and the mm-hmm. Brussels attack, and some of the other attacks in France. 
Oh, no, no. Right around this time. Yeah, 2014, 15. Right around that time, we're doing mm -hmm. the attacks there. So the U.S. under Obama, his central command is giving intelligence to the Houthis to use to kill AQAP guys. Mm -hmm. Two months later, March 2015, Obama stabs the Houthis in the back and takes Al-Qaeda's side against them because <laughs> that's what the Saudis want. And that was six and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And as the Obama people called it, and the war continued nonstop all through Trump, but in the fashion, as the Obama people would say, leading from behind. Uh -huh. Oh, it's the Saudi-led coalition. They're just flying, you know, three-quarters of their air force are American <laughs> F-15 Eagles, and the rest are British Typhoons, mm -hmm. you know, our junior partners who would turn off that support in an instant if we asked them to. They're dropping Lockheed and Raytheon bombs, and they have American contractors doing all of the maintenance, all the care feeding of their Air Force. Think the Saudi princelings take care of their own jets? Hell no. It's all American contractors over there doing all of that work, and then even doing the logistics and the intelligence for picking the targets and getting the war carried out. And in the late Obama years there and into the Trump years, you had American super tankers doing the mid-air refueling for the Saudis and the UAE so they could get to their civilian targets that they're bombing in a war that's not just treason because Al-Qaeda is part of the coalition with Saudi and UAE and has even been integrated into the UAE's militia force there. But it's also genocide, a real no-fooling genocide. And through all the you know, absolute catastrophic violence against the people of Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq and Somalia. I left out Somalia here, but <laughs> they're part of this story. It's now America's longest war. It will be in a couple of months. And, and all of this just absolute horrible collateral damage, inexcusable collateral damage. I'd be hard-pressed to show you where they were deliberately targeting civilians because they were just trying to terrorize the hell out of them. The last time they really did that was in Iraq War One, when they very deliberately targeted the civilian infrastructure of Iraq. Well, that's what they're doing in the war in Yemen. They're bombing the water and the electricity and the sewage, the garbage men, bombing all the trucks, you know, all the at, you know, fuel supplies bombing the farms, the grain silos, the irrigation ditches, the flocks of sheep in the field, the horses in their stables, fishermen in their boats on the Red Sea, and they're just doing absolutely everything they can to reduce the civilian population to death, to destitution and death. This is already the poorest country in the Middle East. And at the time that the war started, they were already importing something between 80 and 90% of their food from foreign countries. And here they've been under total blockade for six years. And it was, these numbers are so old. They're two and a half years ago, the United Nations said that more than 230,000 people had been killed in the war, almost a quarter of a million. And I guarantee you, those numbers were low then, and I bet you they're far more than double now. Mm -hmm. And the UN predicted this year, and it's already the end of July, they predicted at the beginning of this year that 400,000 Yemeni children would starve to death in the famine this year. Mm. They've suffered the worst cholera outbreaks in recorded history, which means since World War II, which means worse than the UN did to the Haitians, and which means worse than H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton did to the Iraqis in bombing their water and their sewage. The worst cholera outbreaks where at least tens of thousands have died mm. of cholera, which I come to find out is a very easily treatable disease. You don't even need antibiotics. You just need clean water. Mm but they don't have any. And so they die by the tens of thousands. And when I say they, I mean, of course, children under five years old vomiting and defecating themselves to death mm. at the hands of Uncle Sam and the American people who don't give a damn even to know that this war is going on. And why? As the Obama government told the New York Times to placate the Saudis mm. who were upset that they thought we might be tilting toward Iran mm. since we fought two wars for them and signed a nuclear deal with them. And Obama couldn't just tell them, no, we did that because we're stupid. Mm. Not because we really are trying to side with them. We're trying to spite them. We just really suck at it. <laughs> and so he launched a war of high treason for Al-Qaeda and genocide against the civilian population of the country. And one that Donald Trump continued every single day of his four years in power. And one which Joe Biden, who was Obama's vice president and failed to stop him at least, at the very least, six years ago, promised to stop this war at the beginning of February and hasn't. Mm. And the war continues to rage on to this day. Mm. Well, so there's so much there. That's it's the a, story. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking to it. Well, it emphasizes just so, uh, so much of 
how much we're being kind of manipulated by other countries. You mentioned Great Britain as a reason why we started Iraq War One. You、mm. mentioned Israel as a reason why. We back Syria. You mentioned Saudi Arabia as a reason why we back. You know, like you know, going into Yemen. It really does seem like we're just sort of like you know used as like a queen on a chessboard by some other player, right? Like you know, exactly. We, you know what? I'll tell you what, man. You got to read this article.、Uh-huh. You'll love it. It's、uh, Jeff Huber, the late great Jeff Huber. He wrote for us at AntiWar.com, former Navy commander and great humorist. And he wrote a piece right after they killed Osama bin Laden. It's called "Osama bin Laden Dead and Loving It." <laughs> and it starts out. He says, "Let's see if I could do this right." He says, "Eat your heart out, Charlemagne. Et tu, Julius Caesar. <laughs> and how do you like them apples, Alexander? Because here is the greatest general in all of human history, <laughs> Osama bin Laden, hiding." Even from his own wife in the attic in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and yet the most accomplished general in all of human history, able to move the most powerful armies who ever existed hither and yon across the chessboard of the entire planet Earth at his will,、mm. to get rid of all of his enemies and accomplish all of his ends, radicalize people toward his politics and religious beliefs and all of the rest. In a way that he probably couldn't even have believed was possible himself, and so now you're telling me that you shot him in the head. So <laughs> you think he minds? He doesn't mind. He won the war, man.、Mm. Yeah. Well, so let's talk very briefly about like the role of money on all this, because in a sense, there's no way that the U.S. could afford all this unless they had the money printing machine. That Absolutely right.、Reserve. And of course, that is in large part backed by the fact that you need to use the dollar for oil, which is part of the petrodollar system, which、yep. came after the cutting ties to gold, which is intimately linked with Saudi Arabia, and you know they're buying our debt, and they're also you know forcing the rest of OPEC to more or less take dollars for it. So, to what degree does this change once we once the dollar? Isn't the preeminent、uh, reserve currency of the world, and this is something that I think is definitely possible with something like Bitcoin. Yeah,、uh, you know that's a great question.、Uh, you know, Robert Higgs, the great libertarian economist. I asked him about this petros dollar stuff years ago, and he said, "Well, two things." And he parsed it the way I remember it. He parsed it pretty well. He said, "Look, the reality is that with or without the petro dollar, the dollar is going to reign supreme for a thousand other reasons,、mm. and so." You know, there's pretty common theories that what got Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi truly targeted by America was their threat to diversify out of the dollar.、Mm. And I think Higgs conceded that that still may be true、mm. because the guys in D.C. don't necessarily understand the reality of the situation. They might have, you know, been overly panicked、mm-hmm. about the implications of that.、Mm-hmm. When really, in his mind. The petrodollar demand is such a small part of the overall global demand for U.S. dollars、mm-hmm. that is, you know, probably not worth worrying too much about. As far as, in other words, if those countries started diversifying out of the dollar,、mm-hmm. it might take a very long time before you had a real panic and a real, you know, fleeing from the dollar from the central banks around the world.、Mm-hmm. You know, as far as, but again, as far as that being the motive、mm-hmm. for the Americans. To lord it over these countries the way that they do, that may still very well play a big part in their thinking, because, I mean, the wisest of them on the right in terms of <laughs> capitalism in the Republican Party is like Dick Cheney saying deficits don't matter, right? <laughs> like these guys are not libertarians; they're not free market guys. They're very much corporatist guys, and they look at the world through a very corporatist lens, so a very mercantilist lens, right? So if somebody wants to diversify about the dollar, they might panic more than is due. Now, whether Bitcoin can really be the solution to that problem, man, pinch me, I'm dreaming. You show me where it's when it really happens that the population of the planet realize that we don't need governments、mm. to issue and control these currencies and to manipulate them in these ways. That we got better ways to do it now. What might they do then? I don't know. <laughs> But you know, I see the possibility in that phrase. Bitcoin solves this. You know,、fixes. whatever it is, yeah, Bitcoin fixes this. this. Podcast,、yeah. Oh, that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> so you should have said that really loud at the beginning. You paste your intro on later. Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah, no, I get that. I see the possibility in it, and I definitely see the. 
you know, for anti-government types like me, you know, there's real motive there, mm. you know, to try to break away from the dollar, use anything but the dollar if we can, you know, to, and I've always been, you know, there's an argument, kind of the Walter Block argument is that it's good for a libertarian to be on as much welfare as he can possibly get <laughs> because it's your money anyway, and you ought to get as much of it back. And any money that you get from them is money that they otherwise would have spent stealing more money from somebody else <laughs> or killing somebody or some other horrible thing. And so don't feel bad. Go ahead and do that. My take is the opposite take, which is I don't ever want to be the demand for their supply. Mm. I don't ever want government to be able to even say that I'm a tenth of a percentage point on a see they need us. Mm. I don't need them. I don't want them around. And so if, you know, in other words, if I didn't have to have a driver's license, I wouldn't. Right. Mm. If I didn't. Yeah. In other words, if I didn't, not because they say so, but because I need one to get on a plane or I, mm. you know, to go about my life, I need one. But, you know, if there's a way that I can opt in. Mm -hmm completely into bitcoin and live in a world where that's how people trade and we don't have to you know i can avoid using u.s dollars for virtually everything i will come with you there jimmy <laughs> we will live there together and that might just be right here and in also, a near yeah. future <laughs> right in a very near future you know i hope to see you there all right that flew by where can people find you how can people contact you all right. Well, on scotthorton.org is my website. I got 5,500 interviews going back to 2003 for you there. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. Got a great bunch of podcasters and writers and all those things. That's our little 501c3 nonprofit. And yes, we do take Bitcoins, all you Bitcoin <laughs> jillionaires out there. And then I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, the most important project on the internet, far and away there. And I wrote the books enough already well first of all fool's errand time to end the war in afghanistan the great ron paul the scott horton show interviews 2004 through 2019 and then the latest which is all the stuff that we talked about today is called enough already time to end the war on terrorism and you know if you go to my youtube channel scott horton or uh, youtube.com slash scott horton show i have a 13 chapter video summary of the book where i kind of walk you through the book like that's fun kind of thing someone's just telling me last night that they really like you know as they say red pilling their <laughs> friends and families with that one you know it's the same story i just told here basically in video format if people want to check that out all right awesome thank you unchained capital is a sponsor of this podcast i'm an advisor to the company i know the team well and i'm excited for what they're building if you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a bitcoin native financial services partner Learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Scott Horton can be found at at Scott Horton Show on Twitter, LibertarianInstitute.com, and Antiwar.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est.